He is sanctifying me. Good evening. Welcome to our Bible study on the life of Christ. Tonight, we're going to look into the 12 apostles. I had stated last week that we would spend an entire night on the 12 apostles, and then next week, we'll do our best to get through the Sermon on the Mount in one night. Uh, I, I could easily spend months on the 12 apostles. In fact, there's, a, there's so much information, so much text, so much to discuss about uh, three of the apostles alone that you could spend months on just three apostles, easily a month plus on just Peter. So we are by no stretch of the imagination going to cover in depth all of the apostles. That is not my intention. But the Bible study that we've been doing on Wednesday night wasn't supposed to be about the apostles anyway. So I, I'm not doing, I think, injustice to the apostles by spending one night on them, but I didn't want to ignore them altogether. So we're going to get through this tonight, looking at these 12 men, and then uh, get back to the teachings of Christ beginning next Wednesday. Now, you will find that the list of the 12 apostles is given to us in four separate texts. The first one is in Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, and then Mark 3, 16 through 19, Luke 6, 14 through 16, and the final list is given to us in Acts 1, 13. Now, we're going to list the 12 apostles. I'm just going to give them to you from the book of Matthew. You have Peter, Andrew, and James, and it, it seems that uh, the the lists seem to be grouped in groups of three, three names, because every time that they are mentioned, you find the same three names at the top, middle, second, middle, and the bottom. And although that the, the names may shift a little bit within these four groups of three names each, you will find that the first group of three is always going to be Peter, James, and John. Matthew says Peter, Andrew, James. I'm sorry, Peter, Andrew, and James. The next one says Peter, James, and John. Uh, the last one says Peter, Andrew, James, and then the next Peter, James, and John in Acts. And then you find John, Philip, and Bartholomew. And uh, Bartholomew, of course, is also mentioned as uh, Nathaniel is another name for Bartholomew. It's the same fellow. And then Thomas, Matthew, and James, the son of Alphaeus. That is not James, the brother of Andrew. Or one of the sons of thunder, there was more than one James listed in the names of the apostles. And then you have Simon uh, Judas Iscariot. So these are the 12 apostles mentioned throughout Scripture. And most of the apostles have very little scriptural text attached to them. There isn't really much that God's Word says about uh, Matthew, aside from when we meet him, the tax collector, very little has to be said about Judas Iscariot until you get to the, uh, the, the final uh, gospel account where Judas's true persona comes out and his deception and his, his, uh, his actions regarding Christ and selling Christ for 30 pieces of silver. We do find a lot of text about the, the first three to four apostles Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and not much about the remaining. So there's some speculation regarding these apostles, speculation regarding some of them and who they are and where they're from. There's, there's not much I'm going to say about the speculation. You could go on and on about maybe uh, their background based off of their names and where they're from, but 
This Bible study tonight is not going to get, get nearly as in-depth to cover speculation about some of these guys. So let's go ahead and start with the Apostle Peter and uh, talk a little bit about Peter. There is much to say about Peter, as I have mentioned earlier. First of all, you should know that Peter is the brother of Andrew. Andrew and Peter are brothers. It seems that Peter was the older brother and Andrew was the younger. And as with most cases, it also seems that Peter was the stronger of the two. That's not always the case. You find that sometimes the oldest child is, is more introverted and more laid back and kind of happy to be in the shadows. And sometimes it's the second child that overwhelms everyone with their personality and jumps out and wants to be in the front of everyone's business. Well, in this case, Peter was that guy and Peter was the older brother. Now, you'll find that Peter does have a wife. In fact, you don't, there's not much to be said about the families of any of the apostles, including the Apostle Paul. It's been assumed that the Apostle Paul was not married in the book of Acts because we don't see his wife. It's assumed the Apostle Paul was not married because in the epistles, the Apostle Paul states, it's okay for a man to be married. The Apostle Paul states, it's good for a man to be married, for a woman to be married. But then he also states, but it's also good if someone could be like me. Now, the comparison contrast would be the Apostle Paul claiming he's unmarried. So he's saying it's good to be married, it's good to be unmarried. The point is, we don't know if Paul was married. Some speculate that he was married and that maybe his wife passed and he was a widower because as a Pharisee, it was, it was accepted and pretty much uh, the standard thing for Pharisees to be married when you look back at historical facts. So we don't know if the Apostle Paul was married or not. We don't know if the other apostles were married or not. We do know the Apostle Peter was. How do we know that? From Luke chapter 4, verse 38. And it talks about uh, Peter's wife's mother who was ill, and Jesus Christ came in and healed her. It makes you wonder, Peter was closely attached to Christ for at least two and a half, if not three full years as he wandered from village to village, from location to location, makes you, you wonder, did Peter's wife go with Peter? Uh, we're not told. We definitely know Peter's wife's mother, it seems, did not because she was ill back at the house, and it seems that that was her location. You know, I believe that it's very possible Peter's wife traveled with Peter sometimes and didn't travel other times. She probably, uh, at points in, in, in the ministry, said, hey, I'm going to spend time with mom. I'll see you when you come back around to this location. But I do find it intriguing that Peter did not let his marriage hinder his discipleship with Christ. Essentially, Peter's time with Christ was what you might call a college experience, three years of ministry training, three years of mentorship. It is not that Peter wandered from village to village his entire life. Uh, Peter's wife did not have to make a commitment to, to Peter that, Peter, you know, I won't see you for six months out of the year, or, or you're going to be gone two months, and I won't know if you're alive or dead till you come back around again. That was three years of Peter's ministry with Christ. After that, when you find Peter, you find Peter in Jerusalem, and he stays in Jerusalem. Yes, he does travel to Antioch, which is a, a village close to Jerusalem, not far distance, that he would travel to. To, to, see, to meet the Christians and to encourage the church, but it didn't seem that he made that journey often, and that journey wasn't very far. 
And so don't feel bad for Peter's wife in the sense of she had a husband who was never home. That is not the case. And so you can't use Peter as an example of a man who is serving God over his family. There are some who I believe would like to do so. They think that ministry is more important than family, and I would have you know that when you lose your family, you've lost the most important ministry God has given you. That there can be balance in ministry and family. Now, it seems that at least, again, for three years, it seems it would have been difficult for Peter to have that balance. For three years, Peter is very closely associated to Christ, focused on Christ. And we know for a fact that there were times where Peter's wife was not with him because he's mentioned in the boat during the storm where it's just the apostles, not the apostles and their wives or the apostles and close friends. So there were times where Peter's wife was left behind for days, for weeks, for months, definitely. And so in ministry... There are going to be times, I believe, where God calls us to what you might call moments of imbalance, times of imbalance where it looks like and probably is not a fair balance between ministry and family. I've known some young men throughout the years of my ministry who want a balance all the time, every day. And if at any time the balance is ever off, if at any time they can't give two hours to their family at home. If any weekend they can't be home for all day Saturday or three hours on Sunday, if there's ever a day or a week where that balance cannot be achieved, they're unhappy. They believe that in some way they've wronged their family, that in some way this is not the ministry God has called me to. God would never call me to a ministry where I'm not home every night. God would never call me to a ministry where I'm not home every Saturday, every Sunday with my family. Well, I guarantee you, There were times in Peter's life where that was the case. But that was not Peter's entire life, his entire ministry. And then when you find people like Apostle Paul who are traveling and moving all the time, the man's not married, or at least was married and no longer is. The Apostle Paul actually states in his letters, I I prefer, I wish that you were like me because he states if you are married, you must give attention to your spouse. That's just part of what marriage is. You can't be married and ignore your spouse. Now, of course, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says that that their attention will be drawn to their spouse, naturally so. And so it's expected that if you have a close family, that you would not be doing something like the Apostle Paul, leaving them behind and saying, I'll see you in three years. That would not be a biblical mandate, nor would it be evidenced in any of the Apostles' life for any long-term time. I knew a, young, a man when I, was a, when I was a young boy. I've told the story. I told the story years ago. I'll tell it again. When I was a young boy, I was living in Colorado, and there was a man who would travel. He called himself an evangelist. I don't have much memory of his preaching. I was just intrigued by his life because he put some wheels on a wooden cross, legit, full-scale, heavy wooden cross, and he, he traveled by walking from city to city with that wooden cross on wheels because he can't drag the thing. And his goal was to bring attention to Christianity and to the sacrifice of Christ. And his, his desire was that when he came to a city, churches would have him preach while he was there. And so essentially he was an itinerant preacher uh, who didn't drive but walked from city to city. Now, I don't know 
how many states he traveled. I don't know if he traveled in-state only, out-of-state. I was too young to ask those questions, but I thought, wow, that's amazing. I was like six years old. That this guy walks from city to city carrying this cross, and the church that we were in was his home church. And so my family knew his family. And so when he came through our city of Pagosa Springs, Colorado, he stopped at the home church, and he preached. And the first time I heard him preach, I was intrigued, and I, I remember asking my parents afterwards, stating, wow, that's amazing what this guy does. What do you think, Mom? What do you think, Dad, that he travels and, and carries a cross? Like in my little six-year-old head, this guy was a Christian hero. My parents said, we're not very impressed. He has a wife and children who are not cared for, uh, essentially broke, and, and the wife stays home to care for the children. She cannot get a job because the children are young and there were many. And uh, he may claim that he's out helping people, but he's abandoned his own family by doing so. He sees them occasionally, and he doesn't care for their needs. So my parents were very unimpressed with this so-called traveling evangelist. I don't see that as Peter. Three years tops, and then we see Peter established in one location, and I'm sure his wife was very closely attached to his ministry at that time. Peter's birth name, by the way, was Simon. In fact, when Christ first meets Simon in John chapter 1, verse 42, he renames Simon, or at least gives him a second name. In fact, in the book, uh, one of, of Peter's own epistles, one of his own letters, Peter refers to himself as Simon Peter. So Simon Peter, it seems later on, keeps his old name of Simon and attaches the new name of Peter to himself. Throughout the Gospels, you will find sometimes Christ calling Peter Simon and sometimes calling him Peter. Throughout the Gospels, you will find the other uh, penmen sometimes referring to him as Simon and sometimes as Peter. Now, much is made out of these two names. Some believe that the name Simon was his old name attached to his old self and to his weaknesses, and Peter is his new name attached to his new self and his strengths. Uh, the Bible never makes that clarification, and, and the problem with that assumption is then why is Peter keeping his name as Simon Peter when writing of himself? It would seem odd that if, if Peter represents his new name, his new self, born again under Christ, then why does he keep the old name Simon? He wouldn't. So I think some people make a bigger deal out of the, the naming of Peter than should be. I believe essentially Christ was giving Peter a nickname. That nickname, by the way, in the Aramaic was Cephas, but in the Greek was Petros, and we call him Peter. So Peter, you might say, would be the, the, uh, the English version of the Greek name Petros, which was the Greek version of the Aramaic name Cephas. And so when Christ gives Peter, or Cephas, his new name, there is a reason for that name. The title, of course, infers stone. And the Bible actually gives us that interpretation, John chapter 1, verse 42, meaning a stone or a rock. I mean, how great is that, right? The name being given to you means the rock. And you were given that nickname by Christ. That says a lot about Peter. It says a lot about, about I believe, what God saw in Peter then and what God was intending for Peter to become. Now, there is no apostle that is mentioned more in the Gospels than Peter. You say, wow, he must have really stood out a lot. He must have been the, the front of, of the pack. He must have been the leader of the apostles. And I would say, yeah, I would say, yeah, to all of those things. 
In fact, when the apostles are mentioned, they're mentioned and it states first Peter. And that word first doesn't necessarily mean first in, in order as in numerically or alphabetically. It means first as in leadership. There was first. There was first among equals. First among the apostles. There was the leader, Peter. And by the way, it seems that God placed him. Jesus placed him in that position of leader. A leader of leaders. But boy, this leader of leaders had a hard path before him. You know, a lot of people, I think, want leadership positions, but they don't understand the trials, the tribulations. They don't understand the molding, the, the shaping that must be done in your life to be a successful leader. I think one reason Peter was mentioned so often is because he was a leader of leaders. Number two, because Peter does more than most apostles, it seems, both good and bad. Both commendable and scratching your head thinking, Peter, what are you doing? (laughs) Peter, in fact, is the only one who rebukes Jesus in Matthew 16, 22. No other apostle in any gospel account rebukes the Lord. (laughs) Peter rebukes him. Jesus states, I've got to go. I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, you're not. He rebukes the Lord. No, you're not going to die. No, you're not going to leave. And then that's Matthew 16, 22, where, where where Jesus turns him and says, get thee behind me, Satan. Sometimes those of us who are leaders of leaders go further than our leadership allows. We take our authority further than we should. We assume because we're leaders of leaders that because we thought it, it must be true. Here's Peter justifying in his head and in his heart, I'm going to rebuke the Lord. He justifies that. How can he do that? He must have thought he was quite the guy. After all, he was a leader of leaders. He must have thought, I'm going I'm to voice the opinion of all the apostles. I mean, they're thinking it. I'm just going to say it. I'm going to say what everyone's thinking anyways. Peter, it seems to be very evident to me, is the one who Christ comes down on the hardest and most often. <laughs> but Peter, if you're going to be a leader of leaders, you need the most help in being shaped because you're the one I'll leave behind to help shape others. It is an uncomfortable thing to be leaders of leaders because a leader of leaders, more is expected of you. More growth is required of you, whether in the secular or ministry. If you're going to lead others and shape other leaders, your faults hurt them and you more. And so it will be God's responsibility to deal with your faults harder and more often because of the impact they have on others. And that was definitely true for Peter. Peter is the one, by the way, who is, it seems, most inquisitive. He asked the Lord to explain the parables more than other apostles, Matthew 15, 15, Luke 12, 41. Uh, Peter was the one that said, hey, how do we forgive others? How should we? How often should we forgive them? Matthew 18, 21. Peter was the one who said, hey, if we follow you, Christ, what reward is there in heaven? He's very inquisitive, Matthew 19, 27. He's the one that when Christ, towards the end of his ministry, cursed the fig tree, and they came back the other day, and the fig tree had withered. Peter's the one in Mark eleven twenty one 21, that, that re- I say, what's going on with that fig tree? How did that happen? What happened there? 
Peter's the one who questions, uh, asks questions of Christ in John chapter 21, verses 22 to 22, uh, the risen Savior. It seems that Peter had a thirst for knowledge. But his thirst for knowledge wasn't just, I want to know more. Peter wanted to know why more than other apostles. Why, Lord? Christ says, follow me. Peter says, why? <laughs> what reward is there? Christ uh, withers the fig tree. Peter says, why would you do that, Lord? What happened? What's going on here? Christ asks, or Christ gives parables, and, and Peter says, why? Tell me about those parables. What are you trying to say here? The why. I think that's great, by the way. Peter wants to understand, not just know, but understand. And you notice how Christ deals with Peter. When Peter is asking why for the right reasons, Christ is quick and compassionate in his responses. He doesn't get impatient with Peter for asking why. He doesn't get harsh or, or short with Peter for asking why. He wants Peter to know why. So Peter can then answer that for others. You know what I find in a lot of churches with a lot of leaders? You ask why, and they'll say, because I said so. You ask why, and they'll say, because God says so. You ask why, and they'll say, you need to have more faith. <laughs> they don't give you answers to the whys. Well, you can't create leaders if you can't answer why. You won't encourage strong leaders if you don't answer why. And Christ answered why for Peter on a regular basis. And we need to do the same for children, for other adults who are inquisitive. That is not a bad thing. Answer the question of why. Now, of course, you know the stories, uh, famous stories about Peter, where his faith is tested by walking on water, Matthew 14, 27 through 29. You've heard the preaching. I'm not going to re-preach this message where, oh, Peter's faith failed. Yes, but Peter's the only one that got out of the boat <laughs> to begin with. No one else did. And by the way, leader, a leader of leaders will be the one to get out of the boat and will be the first one to fail because they're the one out in front. That is what leaders do. Leaders will fail. Others, when they sit back in their comfort zone and say, I don't want to try because I might fail, a leader says, let me at it. Getting out of the boat, walking on water, sign me up. That's a leader. A leader wants to try. A leader wants to push the limit. It's said of leaders, strong leaders, that they have vision, which is true, by the way. I do believe strong leaders have vision. But it's not enough to have vision. You must act on that vision. A strong leader doesn't just dream of what could be. A strong leader keeps pushing towards what will be as God gave them. God says, you can have this. This is where you can go. And a strong leader said, let's go. Get me out of that boat. I'm going to walk on that water. Lord, can I? Will you let me? Let's do this thing. You got 12 leaders. Only one of them got out of the boat. Only one of them was willing to push the limits. There's a reason why Peter is mentioned more than all the other leaders, all the other apostles. You know, sometimes we look at leaders who are pushing the limit. And we say, wow, you know, I wish I could be like that. Well, don't compare yourself to them. Compare yourself to Christ. But I'll tell you what's going on in that leader's life. They're not scared to fail. A strong leader is willing to fail to learn from their mistakes, and to keep going. That's Peter. The guy failed constantly in the Gospels. To the very end, he denies Christ, right? Denies Christ three times, fails again. 
and yet Peter keeps getting back up. That's a leader. Peter's commitment is tested, of course, as I just stated, Luke 22, 31 through 34. Peter, uh, Christ says that, that I'm going to die, and Peter says, hey, you know, or no, Peter, Christ says, you guys are going to reject me. Uh, you're going to leave me, and Peter says, I'll never leave you. He says in Luke chapter 22, uh, 31 through 34, you know, I'll die before I leave you, and God says, no, you won't. Jesus says, no, you won't. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And, of course, we know the story. That's exactly what happens. But then, after Christ's resurrection, Peter's love is reaffirmed. In John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17, Christ asked Peter three times, do you love me? Peter responds three times, you know I love you. Christ allows Peter to recover from his mistakes. That's good leadership right there. Sometimes we as leaders, we drown people in their mistakes. We hold it over their heads. We remind them of their mistakes every time something doesn't go our way. We remind them, hey, remember when you did that? Remember when you did this? We do not allow them to grow and move on from their mistakes. Christ does, and he did for Peter. Because of that, you find in the book of Acts a very strong leader for God. The rock that God called him in the very beginning, John chapter 1, verse 42. Peter becomes that rock in Acts. He was not the rock in the Gospels. A lot of issues in Peter's life. Oh, yeah, he pushed the limit. He, he got out in front. He was a leader of leaders. He was respected by the other apostles. He asked a lot of questions, but he made a lot of mistakes, and he kept falling. But he did get back up, and in the end, God allowed him to. And then after so many times of falling and so many times of getting back up, Peter's love was confirmed for Christ so strong that we don't see him falling too much more. Now, there, are, there is at least one instance where Peter falls. The Apostle Paul refers to it when Peter visits the Christians in Antioch and, and seems to, uh, to seclude himself and, and segregate himself from the Gentile believers because he was afraid of the other Jews. He didn't want them seeing him with Gentile believers. So we do see Peter still falling, but not nearly as often as we do in the Gospels. Peter grows into the rock God intended. Now we find, of course, uh, as Christ is in the, the garden and Judas Iscariot comes and brings the servant and the, and the soldiers, Peter, cuts the servant's sword, ear off with the sword. He, you know, Peter, it seems, is a, a rather violent man by nature. That is not something you just do out of nowhere. You don't just pull out a weapon and cut off a guy's ear. There has to be some kind of underlying um, anger issues, violent issues to, to revert to. By the way, I highly doubt Peter was such a good, accurate uh, swordsman that he, he was aiming for the ear. I'm pretty sure he was aiming for the guy's skull. He intended to kill the guy. And fortunately for Peter and the servant, Peter was, had bad aim. I mean, he was only a fisherman. He wasn't a soldier. Which, again, you couldn't be that accurate if you haven't used a sword very often. It was by chance he only cut off the guy's ear. Peter was going to kill. And in God's sovereignty and God's mercy, Peter does not and learns another lesson through that when Christ puts the ear back on the servant and says, hey, uh, if you're going to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. 
After Christ raises from the dead, Peter reverts to fishing again. It is where Christ meets Peter when Peter is fishing. It's not that I think that's such a big deal. I think there's other things that could be said. Peter was waiting for God's command. There was no command. Let's go fishing. All right, not that big of a deal, but it does show you Peter truly loved fishing. And in the end, God says to Peter, do you love me more than these? And that's when he asked three times, specifically the fish. And I think it is at this moment where God says, Peter, I know you love fishing, but you've got to let it go. You cannot keep this in your life. I have a higher calling for you. And I believe it was at that moment that Peter left his last love of fishing and completely dedicated himself to the kingdom of God. All right, that's Peter. Not going to spend nearly as much time on the other apostles because there's not nearly as much to say about the other apostles. But let's take a look at Andrew. We find Andrew, of course, again, the younger brother of Peter. He also was a fisherman. We find that Andrew was one of the first two apostles to join Christ, at least join him uh, and have conversations with him. I, I had stated earlier it's likely the apostles joined Christ and then left Christ and then joined him and left him for at least a few months until Christ solidified that and said, hey, follow me. And that's when Peter, James, Andrew, and John left the nets and followed Christ permanently. So there was some time where they, they only followed, you might say, part-time. But Andrew and John, according to John chapter 31, uh, John chapter 1, verses 30, verse 37, were the first two to ever find interest in Christ. After John the Baptist said, he's the guy, here's the one, the one I, I'm not worthy to, to tie the, the, the shoelaces of this guy. Uh, after that statement is made that this is the Messiah, it is Andrew and it is John in John chapter 1, verse 37, who say, hey, can we follow you? Where do you live? Where do you, where do you dwell? And Christ said, come with me and find out. And then, of course, they have a conversation together. And then it is Andrew who uh, goes and, and gets um, someone else. It's Andrew who, who, we're told, brings others to Christ. On more than one occasion, by the way. It seems that Andrew uh, is the guy, if you look at uh, John chapter 12, verse 21, it is Andrew who, we're told, some Greeks, some, some uh, non-Jews come and they want to meet Christ. First, they go to Philip. And then we're told Philip comes to Andrew and basically says, what should I do with these guys? Should I bring them to Christ or should I not bring them to Christ? Well, Andrew doesn't have to think very long about that. Andrew knows what the answer is. He, he gets these Greeks and he brings them to Christ. We're told that uh, Andrew is the one in John chapter 6, verse 9, who brings the young lad to Christ. When Christ asked the, qu the question to the disciples, hey, there's, there's 5,000 men here plus women and children. What should we do with these? Should, I, should we send them back? Should we, should we help them out? And the apostles said, well, send them back because we don't have any food for them. There's no way we could possibly feed these guys. When Christ questions them or gives the apostles a chance to display faith, it is Andrew who says, well, Lord, I'm not sure what you could do with this, but I do know a kid. <laughs> I know a boy. And this boy has some food. He has some fish and loaves. And it's in John chapter 6, verse 9, that Andrew brings this young boy to Christ. It seems that Andrew recognized something very true about Christ. He recognized Christ wants to know people. 
Christ wants to meet people. And you could never do wrong by bringing someone to Christ. Now, Peter and Andrew, I think, are a true illustration of how it's often the case in families where one sibling seems to overshadow the other. Whether it's the oldest sibling overshadowing the second or the second one who says that ain't happening and is a very strong personality and overshadows the oldest. But in one way, it seems a lot of times one sibling takes the forefront and the other one steps back. Andrew, it seems, had been willing to be that one who stepped back. Andrew, who was willing to be in the shadows. It doesn't seem that Andrew resents his brother Peter. Andrew doesn't ever seem to be uh, one who is scornful or has a bad attitude. Little is said of Andrew throughout the Gospels. But when we see Andrew, we see a guy bringing people to Christ. And that's a beautiful testimony about anyone. The next apostle we're going to look at tonight is James. Now, James and John were brothers, as Peter and Andrew were brothers. It seems that Peter was the stronger personality, older brother. Andrew, not so much, younger brother. But in this case, James, the older brother, it seems was not the stronger personality. It was John, the younger brother, who was the stronger personality. Uh, Both James and John are referred to as the sons of Zebedee in uh, Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. And that seems to have some significance because it is John who goes to the trials of Christ. It is John who brings Peter into the courtyard to hang out. It is John who seems to have some connections with the Levites at Christ's trial. And how is it? that John had these connections. It is assumed, and this is an assumption, that John and James's father, Zebedee, was a Levite. But not just any Levite. It is assumed he was a Levite with very strong, powerful connections. And so by nature, James and John would have strong, powerful connections. Because in this culture, Once a family has a connection, that connection is for all, the father and the sons, not just the one. And John displays that connection by getting into a midnight trial of a very controversial figure, Jesus Christ. And where others are not allowed, John is. And so that proves his connections. And so John probably got those connections through his father. And another reason it's mentioned is because the sons of Zebedee, is implied that Zebedee was a man of importance. His name, the way it's given in Scripture, seems to imply the guy was well-known. So think of this. James and John, when they left their family, fishermen, when they left fishing to go follow Christ, they were not only leaving a prominent position because it seemed that their family was rather wealthy because they had servants helping with the fish. They also left a family who was prominently well-known politically in the area to follow a controversial figure, Jesus Christ. If anyone had a lot to lose, Matthew was one, right, the tax collector, but James and John had a lot to lose to follow Christ. And yet, it seems that John had no regrets 
John refers to himself as the apostle whom Jesus loves. And James is uh, not much said about him. But I will say this, in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we find James is the first apostle to be martyred for the cause of Christ. Now, of course, Judas Iscariot is the first to die, killed himself. <laughs> but the first to be killed for Christ, that's James, the older brother. James, the older brother, who very little is said of, of him except for his name being mentioned in certain situations. For example, it seems that as Christ went off and there, he only had a few apostles with him, well, the few that were with him would have been Peter, Andrew, and James. And yet, uh, we're not told a whole lot more. We're told his name is mentioned as being present. Being present at uh, Mark 35, 37, when Jairus' daughter is raised from the dead and only a few apostles are, left, are, are allowed in, and James is one of them. His name is mentioned at the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, 1, where only a few apostles are brought in. So James is not mentioned much, but his presence is there. You know, a lot of Christians, they want their names to be engraved on a plaque, on the side of a wall. I know of, of course, ministries, some ministries fundraise, and they say, buy a brick. We're building a, we're building a new center. We're building the, the sanctuary. And if you donate so much money, we'll give you a certain color brick or a size brick, and we'll engrave your family's name, and we'll put it on the wall, and it will, your family's name will be memorialized. Now, i got to tell you, that's actually pretty smart fundraising. I'm not saying I'm against, you know, this style of fundraising. I'm stating the motive for a lot of people is I want my name on that brick. Not James. James didn't really care, it seemed, just like Andrew didn't really care. These were leaders who just wanted to be near Christ. These were leaders, if anything was known about them, they just wanted to be known that when Christ did something, they were there. At the Mount of Transfiguration, Andrew was there. Not much else is said about Andrew. James is there. James got to witness some amazing miracles that no one else did. The raising of Jairus' daughter. James was found with Christ. That's a beautiful thing, and I hope that can be said about us. If nothing else can be said, can it be stated? I'll know where you're at. If I find Christ, I'll find you. And then there's John, the younger brother of James, but definitely, by far, the louder brother of James, the more dynamic personality of the two. It is also said of John by himself, and John gives himself the nickname, the disciple whom Jesus loved throughout the gospel account. He calls himself that, the disciple whom Jesus loved. By the way, again, James and John are the brothers of uh, sons of Zebedee, also called the sons of thunder. It is the brothers, James and John, whose mother comes to Jesus and says, in your kingdom, when you establish your kingdom. Now, I don't know that the mother believed Christ's kingdom would be in heaven. I believe she thought he would become king on this earth. And remember, coming from a family with very powerful political ties, the mother wanted to make sure that those boys enhanced the family name. Now, whether James felt the same way or not, we don't necessarily know. We do know there were times where the apostles were arguing over who would be the greatest. I don't believe James and John were the only ones having that argument. It was probably a discussion among many of them. 
But for sure, the mother wanted these boys to be powerful political figures with Christ. And that's when Christ responds to them, woman, you don't know what you ask (laughs) when you ask for them to be on the right hand and on the left. But John, I believed, had a sincere love for Jesus. I don't believe John was in it for the attention. I don't believe John was, was in it for the legacy, for the name, even though his mother, I believe, had some misconceptions. John did not. You know, sometimes our family doesn't understand what we do and the sacrifices we make, and that's okay. They don't need to. They're not making those sacrifices. John's mother obviously had a misperception on what John was doing and why he was doing it. John's mother thought he's doing this so he could be powerful, and I'll help him with that. John did it because he loved Christ. It is John who was resting his head on the chest of Jesus. It is John who had a close connection to Jesus. It is John who who mentions his love for Jesus. And not just the gospel account written by the Apostle John, but in the other three books attached to his name, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, all written by the Apostle John. When you read 1 John, you will read much about two things, two concepts, two things repeated over and over again throughout 1 John. Love and truth. John was a lover of Christ and therefore was a lover of truth. You can't separate truth from Christ. 1 John, the whole book, in fact, speaks so strongly of truth that if you didn't know any better, if you didn't read any other books, if you didn't read the epistles of Paul, if you didn't read the Gospels, if you didn't read the Gospel of John, you might walk away from 1 John thinking that if you don't know truth and live truth, you're not saved. <laughs> that the book of 1 John could actually cause you to doubt your salvation if that's all you read and all you knew. That's how much John loved truth. John was hardcore. No, if it's true, it's true. Don't tell me a lie. But also John loved. I believe John grew in his balance of truth and love. I think that if you read John's, all of John's books that was, was inspired through, Christ, through the Holy Spirit, including the book of Revelation, you will find that, that John seems to, to come to a balanced point. And it is important when reading 1 John that it's not the only book you read, the only gospel, uh, the only epistle, excuse me. But John loved truth. But John loved to love Christ. In fact, in 3 John verse 4, the apostle John states, in fact, I'm going to read that, read it verbatim for you, referring to the church, referring to those who he had Uh, mentored, those he had led to the Lord, he says in 3 John verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, not biological, spiritual children that he had led to the Lord and mentored, walk in truth. My greatest joy is that people know and follow truth. John was not a leader who, 
whose greatest ambition was that you felt good. John was not a preacher who would say, come to these services, and when you walk away, man, you're going to walk away feeling warm and fuzzy like God just gave you a big hug. That is not, and that would not be John's style of preaching or teaching. John would walk, want you to walk away saying, I learned more today, and I'm going to do something with it. You see, that's important you get both, because some preachers, they are really good at teaching you new things, so you walk away and say, I learned a lot today, but you're not sure what to do with it. Some preachers are really heavy on do, 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 and they get you to act, but you'll, if you stopped and thought about it, you would say, I'm doing this, but I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't know the purpose of this. I'm just doing it because I've, there was a call to action by this great evangelist who really empowered me and, and motivated me. So I'm going to do this thing, but I'm not sure what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. But not John. John wanted you to know truth but, and to have action, but to have reason for the action, to walk in truth. And, of course, it is the Apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation. It is the Apostle John who was the last of the apostles to survive. And when I read the historical account of the early church fathers and what they claimed happened, I'm not sure that was a... (laughs) blessing. I'm sure most, if not all of you know, uh, it was stated, it is stated that Jesus uh, allowed the Apostle John to go through much tribulation. The Romans would have, it's claimed, put him in boiling oil uh, where his skin would have been seared, damaged for life, and then he was exiled, lonely, away from those he loved most till his dying day on an island of Patmos. And it's been said there are things worse than death. And I think the Apostle John experienced it. Yes, he was granted the blessing of a vision like none other. Uh, In full detail, the end times, like no other prophet had been given before his time. And I'm glad for John that he received that blessing because, wow, he paid a price. In, in John, the gospel, gospel of John, chapter 21, verse 19, Jesus Christ speaks in verse 18 of Peter and how Peter is going to die. And then Peter, in verse 19, um, this spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. When he had spoken this, he said unto him, follow me. Verse 20, Peter says, see the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's, that's John. Which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? (laughs) Peter says, okay, God, uh, you've kind of prophesied of how I'm going to die. It doesn't sound too good. What about John? Now, why would Peter care? Because I think that Peter might have been a little jealous. Peter is a leader of leaders, and a leader of leaders usually wants to be on the forefront and have the best of everything. And I think there was some jealousy in Peter's life, thinking, wait a second, I got to go through that? What's Peter, what's John got to go through? And here's God's response. Here's what Jesus says. If I will, ta- if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow me. He doesn't actually give an answer to Peter. But you know what, ironically? God allows Peter 
to go through some difficult times, but God brings John through much worse. God inspired Scripture, and in inspiration, inspired John to use the phrase, the apostle whom Jesus loved. It seemed that John had a very close connection with God, with Jesus. But that close connection did not keep him from severe trials. It seems to me, of all the apostles, John experienced the worst. And sometimes those of us who are closest to Christ do experience worse in this life. Why? Because God hates us? No. Because God can trust us with more. Let's go to the Apostle Philip next. We find that it is Philip in John chapter 1, verse 43, the, the first apostle that Christ goes to that apostle and says, follow me. He does go to others, including Matthew. But Philip is the first one where he says, follow me. It is Philip uh, who goes to Bartholomew or Nathaniel in John chapter 1, verse 45, and gets Bartholomew when he says, hey, you got to meet this guy, Christ. I'm going to bring you to him. It's, of course, that statement where he says he's from Nazareth, and, and Bartholomew says, wait, what good thing comes from Nazareth? And Philip says, man, just come and look. Come and see for yourself. Philip was the earliest disciple called by Christ. Yes, Andrew and John followed Christ, but Philip was the first and earliest to be asked to follow Christ. It is Philip's faith that is tested in John chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. When the feeding of the 5,000, Christ looks to Philip specifically, and he says, what should I do? Now, I said, you know, all the apostles kind of were speechless, but specifically says to Philip, what should I do? And in John chapter 6, verses 4 through 7, Philip basically says, there is nothing you can do. Uh, There's no food, no amount of food that we have that could feed these guys. That's Philip's response. God gave Philip an opportunity to display faith, and Philip failed. Unfortunately, that's not the only time Philip's faith failed. We also find in John chapter 14, verses 6 through 9, this is the the end of Christ's life. Christ is going through some very difficult time. In fact, it's the final night of his life at the Last Supper. And during the time of the Last Supper and that evening, of course, that's when the garden event is and all all these things going on. In fact, in the book of John, uh, there is a lot of text Multiple chapters dedicated to that final night. And in this final night, we're told that uh, Christ, in John chapter 14, he talks about himself and where he has to go. He says in verse 3 of chapter 14, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Verse 5, Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Now, of course, Thomas, we'll talk about him, right? doubting Thomas. Unfortunately, when you find Thomas, you find Thomas doubting on the two occasions that we see him. Jesus says, I am the way, verse 6, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye have known him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Philip still wants proof. Even at the end, the last night, Philip isn't completely convinced. 
that Christ is God. I believe that some of the apostles were saved before Christ's death. I believe it's very likely others were not. We know Judas Iscariot was not because Satan indwells him. And Satan cannot and would not indwell a true follower of Christ. I think it's likely Philip was also unsaved at this moment. I believe that um, there is a very likely possibility that Peter was saved. You see some of the things going on in Peter's life and some of the responses and where Christ says the Holy Spirit revealed that to you. I think that implies that uh, Peter's not an un, in an unsaved condition. But I, I'm pretty sure Philip's faith is in doubt here. <laughs> Philip's salvation is in doubt here. Fortunately for Philip, he gets saved later. I think that after Christ resurrects from the dead, Philip, in all of his questions and all of his doubt, is erased forever. He gets saved and God is very gracious to give Philip that chance. But Philip's faith is tested on multiple occasions. One, practically, John 6, 4 through 7. Practically speaking, is Christ the miracle worker? After Christ had done many miracles, Philip still doubts Christ the miracle worker. And theologically, his deity is questioned by Philip directly in John chapter 14, verse 8. And yet God still allows Philip to be in his group, even in his doubting. You know, it is interesting Philip being the first disciple that Christ said, follow me. And yet the disciple that seems to question Christ more than others. But Christ chose Philip. Philip didn't choose Christ. Andrew, James, I'm sorry, Andrew and John, excuse me, they chose Christ. Others seem to choose Christ and follow Christ. Philip, the doubter, you, caught, you often think of Thomas, doubting Thomas. He too doubted. But Philip, doubting, was chosen by Christ. Now, you find Bartholomew. Not much is mentioned about Bartholomew. I do want to turn to John chapter 1, verses 47 through 50, and say this about Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel. Some gospels call him Nathaniel. Some call him Bartholomew, same guy. In verse 47 of John chapter 1, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. He is guiltless. This man lives a righteous life. Not that he's perfect, but he lives a life according to the Old Testament laws. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, When thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Immediately, it seems, Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, says, hey, you're the Messiah. You're the guy we've been looking for. You are the Son of God. Not only are you a teacher, not only are you a master, rabbi, you're not just a good person. You're God. You're the Messiah. I mean, it seems to me this guy had immediate faith. Like, it didn't take much for Bartholomew, Bartholomew to get saved. Whereas others, obviously, their journey was much longer. And so what a beautiful thing to be said of Bartholomew that unlike Philip who struggled in his faith, Bartholomew had the faith of a child, quick to trust Christ. Now, I've stated already, Thomas, we just read a text uh, where, in John chapter 14 where, where Thomas is in question of Christ. And, of course, you know the story uh, when the apostles state they've seen Christ and Thomas says, I won't believe it unless I see 
the, the holes in his side and in his hands. I won't believe it. And so ever since, it seems, Thomas has been tagged with the phrase, Doubting Thomas. Well, praise the Lord, God doesn't abandon Doubting Thomas. Praise the Lord, Christ is very compassionate when he meets Thomas. He says, I know what you said, Thomas. I, I know your doubt. So here, you want to feel my side? Feel my side. You want to feel my hands? Feel my hands. You know, Christ could just have said, Thomas, believe or don't, I could care less. No, Christ cares. And so, so, so Christ says, look, if this will help you doubt, then let me give you that help. I've known some Christians who truly wanted to believe something about God. They sincerely wanted to believe. And they prayed, God, please, please show me, prove to me, reveal to me this whatever thing, whatever truth it is I need to know about you. Reveal that to me. And I wouldn't say that's necessarily a horrible prayer. You're talking to a loving God who wants you to know more about him. And I think Christ has proven already through Thomas that if that's what it takes, I'm not going to promise you that's what will happen, but that is the kind of God you serve, a God who's willing to go the extra mile to prove himself, to be honest, to someone who doesn't deserve it. Thomas didn't deserve the effort of Christ. Christ gave it anyways. We don't deserve for God to prove himself to us, and yet I think how many times God does and will prove himself to us, not because he needs to, but because he loves you so much, he's willing to. We're told of James the Less, or James the son of Alphaeus. Really, any time James is mentioned, it's just in a list, <laughs> along with Thaddeus or Labaius, just in a list, no information given, as well as Simon or um, the other Simon, not Simon Peter, but there's another Simon. Did you know that in the 12 apostles? There's two Simons, Simon Cephas or Simon Peter and Simon, just Simon. But again, just given in a list, no information at all attached to his name in the Gospels or in the book of Acts. And the only reason we have anything to know about Judas Iscariot is because of his betrayal. Up to that point, there's really just, again, a list of names. Not going to say much about Judas except for this. Last week, I left you with the question of why would Christ allow Judas to be in his inner circle of 12 when he knew Judas was unsaved, when he knew Judas was betray would betray him, if Judas could have done that as just a follower, a disciple, one of the 120 disciples, he didn't have to be in the inner circle to betray Christ. Why? I think that the reason to that question is, first of all, fulfilled prophecy. In the Old Testament, it's prophesied that Jesus would be betrayed and I think implied that, you know, betrayed by someone who was close to him. So fulfilled prophecy. But I think there's a, you know, God didn't have to prophesy that. God could have changed that, right? So we're still back to why. Here's what I, what I believe. I cannot tell you this. There's no scripture I can point out and say this is definitely the case. This is the reason why. But here's what I believe. The Bible tells us that in the book of Hebrews, Christ is a priest. But unlike any other priest, he's a priest who's been through all kinds of tribulations and trials and understands what we've been through because he's been through it himself. There is no trouble we've been through that Christ himself did not experience some form of it. 
I'm not saying that if we go blind, Christ was also blind. But when we go through physical pain and suffering, Christ did went physical pain and suffering. I know it differs from person to person, but Christ had pain and suffering. When we go through rejection, Christ had rejection. When we go through betrayal, Christ had betrayal. But not just any kind of betrayal. Betrayal by someone who was close to you. Why did Christ choose Judas? So Christ, God himself, could experience what it's like as a human to be betrayed by someone you've embraced, brought close into your life, trusted, so Christ could experience that. And when we go through that betrayal ourselves by a family member, by a child, by a parent, by a friend, by a member of the church, by a pastor, when we are betrayed, sold out, gossiped, kicked, Christ knows. And by the way, something unlike us, Christ knew when he chose the guy. Most of our betrayal was through ignorance, through deception. We didn't marry this person or befriend this person knowing they would do these things to us. We thought better of them. If we'd known that, we wouldn't have probably married them or been friends with them, right? We went into it unknowing, and but the trail hurt deep. Christ went into it knowing, still loving Judas, going through the betrayal. Why? So he could be a priest who says, I know. I understand. Let me help you through this. I've been through it myself. That's what I believe about Judas. It could be wrong. We'll know for sure when we get to heaven and ask God that question. But God allowed himself to be betrayed, not just by anyone, but by someone who is close. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the life you lived and the men you brought into your inner circle and what we learned about them tonight. Thank you for the truths, both good and bad. And I thank you for your patience with them, the growth we've seen in their lives and the growth because your love and mercy overwhelmed them with your truth. I pray that you'd help us all to grow. And like Peter, when we fall, get back up again. And like Peter, not uh, ignore your love and patience, but to accept it and to grow from it. In Jesus' name. We'll see you next week as we pick up this series, and we'll begin uh, and end in one night the Sermon on the Mount.